You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hello, and welcome to the X-Men. I'm your host, Doc Coyle, and Happy New Year to all. Welcome to 2017, which is an odd number year. 17 isn't really divisible by any other numbers, I don't think. You know, there you go, Mr. Mr. Math Wiz over here, figuring it out. Apparently, my buddy Paulo from Trivium pointed out 2017 is the year that the movie Running Man takes place. And uh, that wasn't really a great time. It's a little little post-apocalyptic but that's all right you know you got to remain hopeful and I do remain hopeful I got to go home for the holidays to New Jersey to see some family see some friends eat too many cookies I think I ate all the cookies guys there's no cookies left over sorry about that you know now I'm on that diet got to work on that I got to rehearse with Vegas Nerve guys for our upcoming run of shows and I was able to get this week's podcast guest I was hoping to get a couple more interviews while I was out there but unfortunately some schedule conflicts and stuff so the one with our buddy AJ uh, from Mutiny Within I'll be getting to a little later but first we actually don't have any official sponsors this week so I figured it would be a good time to kind of shout out the companies that sponsor me individually as an artist, because they've done so much for me, I think it's really important that I give back. Um, so I'm sure some of these, if you guys follow me, you've seen me use these products, but I'll reiterate. First off, as far as guitars, I don't know if you guys know, I use ESP guitars, been using those since around 2000, 2001, and they've been great to me. Want to give a shout out to Tony Rouser and Chris Canella over there. They've given me uh, a handful of the, their new liners, the E2 models, and they're awesome. So check the, check them out. Um, for amplifiers, I use EVH, which is the Eddie Van Halen line of uh, 5153 uh, guitar heads and cabinets. I have a few different ones. I have 100-watt version, 50-watt, and now they sent me this little 15-watt lunchbox amp and a variety of different guitar cabinets they're amazing i've been using them since 2010 shout out to mike tempesta over there as far as guitar picks i'm lucky enough to use uh dunlop picks which is pretty much the industry standard and that they've been really amazing to me uh shout out to scott uchita and jen dunlop and they also you know, help me out with some crybaby pedals, which Dunlop makes, and also MXR 
effects and they're amazing. As far as guitar cables, I use Planet Waves cables. That's my guy, Hugh, over at Diderio, who also runs Planet Waves. And I also use Diderio strings, which I've always wanted to use since I was a kid because that's what Dave Mustaine from Megadeth used. And now they hook me up and they're awesome. They're the best. And I'm also sponsored by a software company called TuneTrack, which has plugins uh, that very, very prominent in the in the metal world called Easy Drummer and Superior Drummer. And I use that to do all of the, the demos that I work on in songwriting. And it's really an invaluable tool. So if you haven't heard of that, check out TuneTrack. That's T-O-O-N-T-R-A-C-K. Also want to give a shout out to Matt Skaggs up at Kemper. They hooked me up with one of the Kemper profiling amps, and that's been great for my home recordings. And I've done some stuff on the road, but mostly at home. If you're into the newer technology and some of the digital modeling, and also want to shout out uh, Zoom, who hooked me up with the H4N model, which is a digital recorder that is great for podcasts. And they're that's something that I use and I'm helped by that directly helps the show so I can do remote recording. And I also want to give out a shout out to my guy, Brian Doherty, over at Sennheiser, who used to be at Samson. So some of my gear, some of my mics and headphones is some Samson stuff that he helped me with. But now he's over at Sennheiser and I got a new pair of headphones. So big shout out to him and all those guys. You know, we have the NAM conference coming up and I'm sure a lot of you are going to be traveling out there for that. So, you know, a lot of gear is on the mind. And also, if you're out for NAM, if you're at, at the conference, my band Vegas Nerve will be doing a week of dates around there. We're actually playing a show uh, on January 17th, which is a Tuesday, uh, the Tuesday before NAM, and that's at the Slide Bar in Fullerton, which is very close to Anaheim. So it's a free show, and uh, if you're not doing anything, come on out, check it out. So enough with the self-promotion, I would like to get into my discussion with this week's guest, Mr. Andrew Jacobs, a.k.a. AJ, from the band Mutiny Within. And if you're not familiar with them, they were on Roadrunner Records um, in the late 2000s, and really interesting band from New Jersey, and he just has an incredible story, really interesting guy, and I just love some of the subjects we get into. This is a really fascinating conversation on the music industry and building your band and just figuring this whole thing out. It 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 was a really, really compelling talk. And just because uh, Mutiny Within hasn't been that active in the last few years, and I'm not sure of my listeners who's familiar with them, I wanted to play one of their new songs from their forthcoming album. They have an album coming out on February 10th called Origins, and this track is called Justify.
Well, we got our buddy here, AJ. Should we call you AJ? Andrew? How do you how do you how do you like There's it? There's too many Andrews, There's so it's got to be AJ. AJ. When but, I grew up, I was in. But that stands for your last name, though. Yeah, Jacobs. Andrew Jacobs. It's real simple. When I, when I was in like fourth grade, I was on the soccer team, and they're like four Andrews, and their last names were way cooler than mine. Andrew Silver, and like just you know these dope last names. So I said, <laughs> guys, just call me AJ. So that kind of stuck. <laughs> well, <clears throat> that was like my high school where there were 15 Lawrens. Mm-hmm. It was like you know the these right. certain. Yeah, remember because it's. However, what, 20 years before you were born or 15 years, that name was popular and it's New Jersey. And these people are not creative. No. They just take it back. You know, come up with some new shit. Yeah. That's what they have to say. Black people got over white people. They are creative right. with new names. You know what I'm saying? You know, Cladavion. You know what I'm saying? Fucking, you know, you know John Deese. Right. Or some shit. Is, I, Ezekiel. That's I mean, you no, know, that's from, that's, <laughs> that's copying though. That's, 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 that is. That's been you know, done. But, but it's coming back. You know, there's gonna be a lot of Ezekiel babies coming out, especially after this Cowboy season. Believe me. Is that? Oh, is that yeah. name of the Ezekiel Elliott man? To me, my, my favorite name is Jadavion Clowney. Jadavion Clowney. That doesn't yeah. even make any sense. No, it's dope. <laughs> is it? It's like it's so bad, it's good. It's really bad. So, anyway, man, I'm glad to have you on on the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah. Of course. So, for people that that don't know, uh, AJ's old band Mutiny Within. At the time, they were called Mutiny. Mm. You know, this is not from when they were within. They were just they were just mutiny right. against the earth. Right. Uh, you guys were the thing that's interesting in, in, when you kind of put it in context with what God forbid was doing is that in many ways we were kind of the only band of our ilk doing what we were doing in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. You know, even though we had elements of kind of the hardcore scene sound and some of that stuff, but we viewed ourselves as just like a metal band. Right. Like we're a metal band. You know, we're following the footsteps of Pantera and Testament and that kind of realm. And for us, and you guys kind of showed up on our radar around that, like 2008, Yeah, something like that, yeah. Like that, you know, that kind, and in a way, you know, in our entry point into the Jersey scene was the late 90s, so right. you guys are like the late 2000s. Well, we were hitting you guys up because we wanted advice. How do we do this thing? What are we getting ourselves into? Well, I how, remember. So how did you, you got in touch with Dallas first? Yeah, or? I think it was. Be- um, I think it was Dallas. Pretty much so we're, well, I'm from Edison, New Jersey. So central New Jersey and in high school just started playing, um, I guess ninth grade or something, started playing bass well I was supposed to play guitar but my friend wanted to play guitar so I started playing bass and that's how that happened but yeah we were mutiny and all through high school I was just telling everybody we're gonna make it it's gonna be we're gonna be this huge metal band and <laughs> everyone's like yeah okay and everyone you know go to college you gotta do the normal thing or whatever and uh, after high school a couple years after that I mean Mike Gitter signed us but before that we were hitting up bands like you guys yeah but I think I heard about you guys through Mike mm-hmm. because he was following us for two years well, before yeah, he signed he was, us. I remember he was talking about you guys and he was talking about there was this other Jersey band he was looking at um, that's kind of I, I can't remember right, mm-hmm. right right now but it seemed like with Daggers Drawn and there, that's who it was with, right, with, with Daggers go. Drawn so those those are the kind of two bands he had his yeah. his eye on and I remember yeah. he was like yeah there's this band they're kind of like Children of Bodom that was the I think yeah. the only that was my fault, I, and my whole band hated me for saying that. I I guess in our first biography that stuck, I said we were covering Children of Bodom songs, and so everyone started saying, "Oh, were, this band." Were you covering Children of Bodom? Yeah. Songs? 
<laughs> so what's wrong so with that? They hate it because they, I don't know, they thought it would pigeonhole us, I guess. But and now I get oh, you that mean one of the successful all the time. Well, they're a great band, so but not like that. But they have a twenty-something year career, yeah. and they still go. Around I'm fine the- with it. I'm fine. Listen, uh, the, to be honest with you, I was a punk punker. Uh, no effects, bad religion, you know. And I had a punk band around ninth grade. Children Bodum is the reason I started listening to metal. And it's so backwards because everyone else I know that listens to metal, you say, hey, man, how did you start? Metallica or, you know, um, I mean, Slayer, you know, these these classic bands. Mine was like the new school. I, I heard Hatebreeder and Follow the Reaper by Children of Bodum. Well, no, that, that's, that was something that was interesting to me about you guys because especially your your brother – in the in in the band and seeing how good the technical aspects of the playing was because your entry point was stuff that was really high level we had to learn right we had to learn the lessons you usually learn when you start out we had to learn that way later on yeah but yeah but that's also i think that's also like the generational thing like it's like it's like you think about sports yeah right like at a certain point if there's no are you a basketball fan Mm -hmm. Uh, so you don't without Ray Allen. You can't have Steph Curry. Right. Like you okay. can't like they set so, you know, Children of Bodom and like Dragon Force. They don't if it's not for Ingve and right. the speed metal that right. they learned. Right. Then, then you don't get that. And but in a way, you you benefit from the evolution. Absolutely. So so yeah. that's why like every generation is like they can play faster. Right. They can you know the the technical everything the like. The level goes up. No, for sure. I always looked at it that we skipped a bunch of steps and we got to, you know, writing awesome songs way quicker than maybe we would have if we started with the more elementary metal. Um, this stuff, I mean, Children Bodum and Symphony X, right? Those mm-hmm. are Jersey guys. I mean, those were my two bands when I started yeah. playing. And I, I knew these guys already learned from the masters. They already evolved the music. They're already recording, you know, in a sophisticated way. So I said, why don't we just copy, you know, the, what what they've learned and apply it to our band now? We don't have to yeah. start from the roots. And, well, uh, and it kind of was funny. But then once we started getting into songwriting, I said, oh, shit, we ha- I can curse, right? Yeah. Oh, you fuck. can say motherfucker cunt, yeah. oh. dick nose, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'll, butt, just, I'll butt just say neck. shit. I'll just say shit. You know what I'm saying? Um, Ass hair. I said... <laughs> I said, wow, we, now we're songwriting. Now we have to go back to the masters. Now yeah. that we learned how to shred, we have to go back and figure out how to write a song. Because I don't care how evolved bands get, songwriting, go back to the, what, what, the songs that have stuck around for 40 years. Those are the ones you want to analyze. Why, are they, why have they been popular yeah. for so long? Well, they're definitely two different skills. I, I, would, I would draw a parallel. Completely different skills. To I've go- seen shred, these guys shred in the neck. And they can't write a song for their life. It's not easy. No. I mean, I, I think, you know, I was, I was going to say there is a parallel between that and God Forbid where we started out and our songs would have 17 riffs in the song. Yeah, we would have, have 20 same. changes. We had the we, same. It would go from here. It was, it was almost like right. ADD metal before ADD was, right. a, was, was, was a thing. And because we were tr- trying to impress other musicians we were trying to keep ourselves interested as right. instrumentalists right. and then after a certain point i had this point where i was only listening to super heavy stuff i was mm-hmm. listening to suffocation and i was listening to cradle filth and and just super heavy and then i almost went back 
you saying to the roots, yeah. I started listening to Pearl Jam again. I yeah. started listening to Alice in Chains again. I started, I was like, oh, I, there was this whole other thing I was into as well. And then you study that and you're like, wow, this is, it's a whole different mindset in yeah, terms of songwriting. I, I think we learned how to shred fast because, like I said, Symphony X, Children of Bodom, Sonata Arctica, you know, uh, Soil Work, In Flames. I mean, these were my bands. And then my brother, he started playing guitar. The first album he ever learned was Necrophagist. All right. That doesn't even make sense. Okay. So he learned the whole album straight through. And that was the first album he really ever learned. And so once we got the shred down, we started trying to put these songs together. And just like early God forbid, I mean, we had 60 riffs. You know, we had songs that were seven minutes long, time signature changes. I mean, Dream Theater kind of stuff. And nothing against Dream Theater. That works for them. But for what we were doing... I wanted to break into the American Swedish kind of metal where it was soil work, God forbid, kill switch, devil driver kind of area. The more uh, new wave of American heavy right. metal. So, exactly. So looking back at the masters who were the songwriters, I learned, wow, I have all these cool riffs. I got to pick the best one. So that was a challenge. And I said, all right, here's the best riff of this song, of this eight minute song. Here's the best riff. What did the masters do to make sure that riff hammered home and that every kid knew about that riff they played it four times in the song and it repeated and it, it you know what i mean and i said wow this makes so much sense to me i i, I just think it's funny how that's like a revelation you're like hmm mm. so what so you're yeah. saying it goes verse yeah. then chorus yeah then another verse and chorus hmm yeah i should be writing this down <laughs> Who would, have, who would have thought? Oh, that took years to learn. <laughs> that took years to learn. And I guarantee you it's a problem for more than just me. I feel like a lot of kids learning to, to riff and, and play. Well, well now know. think about if you're growing up on Meshuggah and Periphery yeah, and, yeah. And, and that whole you know, w wave of bands where it's music made specifically for other musicians. Right. And they really don't have aspirations outside of that. It's like, yeah, let's yeah, yeah, play sure. to kind of this, which, and I think there's nothing wrong with that, you know, as long as that's what you want to do. Uh, everyone shouldn't be gunning for the same audience. Right. Um, actually, I have a question. Did So did you guys have a relationship with the Symphony X guys? Did, were you friends with them or you didn't know them at all? No, didn't really know them. You we never were, toured with them? No, we never. We played, we opened for them a couple of times, but we didn't yeah. have a relationship like we did with you guys and, and some of the other local bands. I mean, we really... I mean, did you have any... And the thing that kind of strikes me about when you guys came up was not only like where we came up in the hardcore scene, mm -hmm. like we were a metal band because we didn't... There wasn't really a metal scene in New Jersey. As far as we were concerned, like where it's like, oh, there's these bands we can play with them. It was very disparate in the in the uh, mid and late '90s, but then we we're like, oh, there's this heavy music scene that was called the hardcore scene, but there'd be like a grind band, and there would be a straight edge punk band, and there would be an emo band, and there'd be it was everything. Yeah. It didn't really the sound almost was secondary to kind of the uh, the ethos yeah, and the being community. part of the community, right? And um, so that was our entry point, but did you guys, were you involved in any scene? I don't know about that. I mean, I, I just kept wanting to leapfrog all the steps. You know what I mean? <laughs> with, you were trying with, to crack the code? Uh, yeah, I was, I was just looking at the top, and I was like, how do I get there? I don't know. So yeah. we were friends. With Daggers Drawn, we played a lot of shows with them. 
Um, so how did you? But how did you, know, you get ding bats and and, yeah. and stone pony and all that stuff? But how so, did you get the attention of someone like Mike Gitter? Okay, so that's a good question. I actually love talking about this because if there's aspiring musicians or bands that are trying to figure it out, I think this is an important lesson I learned back then. You know, we were in the community a bit. You know, Facebook and and Twitter. I mean, this wasn't. This was 2008. It really wasn't. Yeah, Facebook it was MySpace. Like started, you know? yeah, like but there wasn't really community. There weren't groups, of, uh, you know, online or anything. So it was playing shows at Dingbats and Stone Pony and stuff like that. But I, I had just this feeling we weren't going to break out of that to the level I wanted to get to. And especially because the challenges of just life get in the way. You know, things were happening with different band members, and I was going through band how, members how, how like How old were you guys at this time? At this time, probably. 17, Seven. 16, 17 years okay. old. So it's like the end of high school, sort of. And um, so I just said to myself, look, all these New Jersey bands are clawing and they're trying to get noticed any way they can. Uh, how do I leapfrog all that and go right to the top? Now, I, I don't recommend this for everybody because we didn't have a learning curve. <laughs> we got thrown into the deep end and it proved insanely difficult but yeah. um but that's what i wanted so mike gitter uh i had heard that he was going to be attending a three inches of blood what, what was their name yeah three inches, three of, inches blood. of blood show at hamilton street cafe in, this sounds old school it's like yeah. listen i've i've got i've got a telegram <laughs> yeah this was stolen the, the, the new pre, the new star wars prequel is about the telegram they right. stole to find out that my mike pager gitter, went off and said listen <laughs> mike gitter, you're spies you just spies did you, have, did you have like uh you know <laughs> it just i just <laughs> got heard. a tip uh, yeah a, i got a tip. anonymous tip and and gitter supposed to be attending this three inches of blood show because three inches of blood was on roadrunner so i called the promoter at hamilton street cafe and got us on the bill we were the first to like six bands and i was real nervous that he wasn't gonna get there um but he ended up being there and we played, we were probably okay. I don't know. I don't know if we played that well. Um, and we had the eight-minute songs, and it was Prague and, and, and whatever. So I don't know if he really saw it being a big thing. But I went up to him, introduced myself, got his card, and he heard from me every day for the next, like, five years. <laughs> like, I did not let leave him alone because he's at Roadrunner. That's the label I want. That's the guy I want to sign us. So he got emails, every new demo, every phone call went to him. Um... I was meeting other people, so a story is um, Jul Mistress Julia. Mm -hmm. Okay, so again, 17 years old, we had this demo tape. And that's from Fuse, uh, yeah. Uranium? The show was, was called Uranium on the network, correct. Fuse. Yeah. And, uh, and I had heard that she was bartending at the Brooklyn Bar. What the hell Duff's? is it called? Yep. She worked at Duff's? And she was going to do a night there or oh, something. Oh, you know what? I think I did. Like a one night Yeah, I think I, I did go to, this was at the old Duff's. Yeah, the old Duff's. Um, so, so, so I'm 17. Yeah. I, don't, I can't drink. I can't, I just got my license. This is what you have to do. I got in the car with my keyboard player and we drove to Brooklyn. I've never driven to Brooklyn in my life. I had a demo tape. We couldn't, we got to the front door. The guy's like, you can't come in here. You're 17. Convinced him to let me in. Went up to Julia. Okay. <laughs> convinced oh, yeah. him. How does this work? How I'm, a, I'm a little businessman. I went in there. I had my demo tape in this little bright orange sleeve. No, it just set, wrote mutiny with a marker on it and, uh, and gave it to her. I said, hey, listen, we love what you're doing for, for metal. Um, give this a listen. And, and she ended up becoming a friend 
through that because I got her contact, stayed in touch with her. It's all about staying in touch, and you meet these people, stay on their radar, top of mind. See, and, uh, yo, hold on. I, 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 I just Go got to cut in here Go because in a way, and we guess what? God forbid did the same thing, but instead of that, what you did is what Dallas was. Okay. He was like, he had no fear. Right. And and I understand what you're saying about about uh, I I think cutting steps is not necessarily the right way to put it. I don't but, either. But but. but 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 what I think the best way to put it yeah. is that you see that what most people do doesn't work. It's kind <laughs> of it's like a it's like a rat race. Like I said, to the, mediocrity. The Jersey bands were clawing away and, yeah. and but doing clawing these... away. But but they were clawing away at. Like the like the cookies over here, mm -hmm. but they were looking for the crumbs. Yeah, maybe, and, maybe. And no, and I'm I'm telling you. Okay. I'm I'm telling you as as someone who did the same thing where you you look at the scene right. and you say, all right, this band is doing X Y Z, this band is doing X Y Z, and you can see, oh, they're not seeing something, you know, like you know, and because what we did, we looked at bands. You know, because we were coming up, it was E Town Concrete. Yep. Was you know, you know, in New Jersey, they would play in, in front of fifteen hundred, two thousand people. All that. Yeah. Well, no, we were more contemporary. We were okay. more contemporaries right. with uh, with Forty Below and okay. kind of got signed okay. around the same time. Okay. And and at their peak, we were probably similar. And they, I don't know if they had the national exposure and international exposure we did. So that was more of a contemporary. I'm talking about late '90s bands had already getting. Uh, on tours, bands that already were drawing. They were the big bands, right. the local, the big local bands. Because that's the thing is, you can only see what's happening in your neck of the woods. Right. You know, things were so much more localized. You know, now I think if you're some band in Ohio, you can go and say, "Oh, how did Asking Alexandria get big?" Right. Because as far as you're concerned, the world is smaller now. There's, there's. Uh, oh, it's way smaller now. So yeah. you don't have to necessarily look at the local track. So a couple ideas. One is I didn't care what all these other Jersey bands were doing because I wasn't looking to them. I was looking to, as I said before, Killswitch Engage national, and Slipknot. National yeah, national yeah. And, and worldwide yeah. popular bands. How did they, or what are they on? And I saw, wow, a ton of them are on Roadrunner Records. I want to get on Roadrunner Records. And that was it. <laughs> so I, I, I didn't really care what the other local bands were doing. I'm not looking natural. I'm looking yeah. past you. <laughs> I may, you know what? Now that I think about it, I don't know what the perception of me back then was, but I don't think I was that much of a team player with all the other bands they were doing, the Dingbat shows and yeah. and Stone Pony. I don't know that Mutiny it, was it much looked, of a. It looked small potatoes to you, even. Yeah, back then. and I think I might, maybe I came off arrogant or smug. I don't remember, but I, we probably turned down some shows, and we didn't want to do all the the hard work locally because I had other things on my mind. Yeah. So, um, I think that's one part of it, and, and some uh, you just said. I think the best way to build a band is build your own following without a label or anything and then go get that stuff. So that's the best way. I didn't realize that back then. I said, well, the label will help us build yeah. our band. It's a catch-22. It is. It really where, is. And, and, well, I think back then, though, you guys were maybe caught the last wave. No question. Of, we can get into that. Yeah, of, no question. Um, where the label could actually do their thing right you know put the money into the video put the money into the radio put the money into the marketing and what you know i, I you know i've probably said this on the podcast but i'll say it again there's a difference between hype and buzz right. buzz is organic and happens on its own it's word of mouth hype is something that can be bought and manufactured mm -hmm. um manufacturing hype when you guys came up was 
still existed, but you rewind five, 10, 20 years, and it was definitive. Right. You could literally manufacture the idea that a band is big or doing things uh, because you had so many entry points to do that. And now people, you, it's very difficult to reach people with money these days. You know, like where you can't really put the, um, the resources in a certain spot. Oh, if we do this, then people outside of literally paying a radio station to play your, your song. But it's like, you gotta remember less people are listening to the radio than they did 10 years ago. There is no MTV there. You know, people, at least back in the day, you would have a magazine, you know, everyone would read, you know, uh, you know, what we have like metal edge or these, you know, these, these bigger magazines and even those are going away. So, Anyway. Yeah, you need the organic growth. So, all right, so you decided to skip all these steps and you, you get the attention of, of Gitter. Yeah, I never really put it that way, but now you're just, you're getting it. You're like Howard Stern here. You're like, dig, <laughs> you're digging deep. And well, you know what? That's what I realized it, is that was what was on my mind. I was 17, 18 years old. And I said, how do we skip all these steps? Because the band, some of the bands we were playing with were, uh, you know, 25, 30 years old, maybe even older, and they were still just the local New Jersey band. I said, I can't let that happen. I don't want that to happen. So, well, I think that's the difference between being career-minded, yeah, and and some people being more focused on, say, the artistic aspect or just the, you know, at least I can speak with to the the more underground and like hardcore scene. It was more about being part of the scene was probably more important to many of those bands than just being making it a career yeah, like i know different levels of aspiration that's yeah. totally and that's totally fine and a lot of bands have just had a great time uh playing the tri-state area and and making a business out of it i mean more power to them i when we sat and talked and we were writing our songs we said we want to see as high you know how high can we reach with this so yeah. the getter part of it um he saw us play that show but i mean I, that didn't really do anything it was really the art of following up and I tell every entrepreneur or someone that, you know, wants to build their band or business where it doesn't even have to be music. It's all about following up with these contacts you make, because if you meet someone and you say, man, down the road or even even not that far down the road, they can help me get somewhere. Uh, if you're not on their radar, they're going to forget about you. Well, not only that, but it's also people want to help people they like. Yeah, no question. <laughs> no question. And if they and <laughs> and me and, and Getter became friends. And that's that's too years of being friends before he was able to sign us so there was a lot of relationship building there and me and him we talked every day every day it, that's what it became and we became like real probably best friends at that point and we were talking every day not about music just we were truly you know comrades right you so, guys still stay in touch N not really yeah not really because he's he's west coast like you now and i'm still over here you just so. forget about us <laughs> just huh? forget, no leave? you guys forget about us <laughs> no nah. no we i mean we exchanged texts and stuff but it's not like it was i mean we yeah. were we were preparing to be real partners here in, in business yeah so um i w while i was talking to gitter i didn't know if roadrunner was a sure thing that was my goal but then i started reaching out to all the other labels using roadrunner as leverage saying hey listen we got an A&R from Roadrunner interested in our band. You should check out this demo. Now, all of a sudden, I'm getting Nuclear Blast and Century Media. And, uh, so, so when you guys got an Metal Blade an, and a real thing. offer, yeah. did you actually have offers from other labels and stuff Yeah, on we the had table? about three Yeah, at the same time. That's that's great. Did yeah. you have like a lawyer helping you out with that? or yeah, Nick Ferrara, great lawyer in New York. Uh, he's done all my favorite bands, Pantera. Did you have a manager at that time? 
Yeah, we uh, we picked up a manager, uh, John Germanary. He was uh, so that's another uh, decision that had to be made. Was we were talking to managers. This was all building this hype that we really didn't have a massive following or anything like that. What I had though, and I and I give this advice to to musicians. What I had were these songs. They were coming together, you know. Yeah. And I had these songs. I had this four song demo that I was just. The, these songs were right in line with everything else that was going on in metal on the big stage. So the fact that I had this product gave me the confidence to go knock down the doors of everyone I wanted to talk to. Mm -hmm. And then I used the Roadrunner thing as leverage. And we were able to pick up a manager. Um, we were talking to several, and there were several you know, traditional metal managers, but we ended up going with John Germanario, who has not worked with a metal band before us, but he managed a lot of big, more rock and, and stuff like that. We thought, hey, that might give us a different look. So, so yeah, we started assembling the team and all before Roadrunner offered us a deal. This is, no, it's so interesting because even a lot of this, I didn't know. You know, we were kind of helping you guys out, getting you on a show in here, give you some advice. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's, it's pretty fascinating. And I think what you did perfectly and i don't and i wonder if it could actually work today maybe it wouldn't work in the metal world but maybe it would, it would work in a different genre mm -hmm. it is the idea of of kind of if you build it they will come yeah. element where you say and i think the, the most important thing about this is actually having the uh the confidence in yourself to say what i'm doing has value mm -hmm. and by not being desperate by not just going out and doing everything for free and putting yourself out there and, and sucking up, you're kind of like, no, no, we're doing something great. And if you want to be part of this, you need to bring something to the table. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's kind of like, <laughs> like, like the idea of like, if you want to uh, hit on a hot girl, you have to act like you're the shit. No question. For her to, you know, it's, it's that, you know, keeping them at, at arm's length and like, oh, maybe there is All something, right. there is something uh, great about this entity or this person. Right. You know? And to talk about Mike Gitter, who, uh, a and R Roadrunner Records, and he—he he was the one, one person in my life that was real with me. And those, those four demos that I'm talking about, those were not in existence until I talked to Mike Gitter for two years because he kept telling he us. Groomed you along. We wrote a hundred songs for him. You know, a hundred songs easily. Well, I remember when I when we first heard you guys, and maybe it was maybe somewhere in that in between phase between you said the seven minute long songs and then what ended up being the first album but in a way and you know and maybe this might be a, a criticism so you can kind of take it uh for what you think i got thick skin sorry i i think in a way once the album came out it might have behooved you guys to be a little bit more proggy a mm. little bit more european mm. because i think when the album came out not for nothing the new wave of american heavy metal thing had kind of passed right like that boom there there hadn't been a you know pr previous to you guys probably the last band to really hit was probably all that remains yeah you know uh and bands that were doing that sound seemed to actually be struggling and at that point it was like deathcore was getting really big <laughs> yeah. and the gent thing was getting big well, so and so maybe to our detriment we were aiming so high that we didn't want to be lumped in with the prog bands. We didn't want to, even that scene, we were like, hey, listen, we can go even further. So can we, can we craft the, the prog sound into these maybe shorter songs and 
just in the solo section, shred it up like crazy, but it won't be the longest solo section. I mean, how do we make this work? And that was us talking with Mike Gitter. We all made decisions on the songs and our producers uh, when we made the album. Uh, yeah, these were all decisions that were made. And, Do you and, think a little, you know? some of that is a little too calculating? Instead Absolutely. Of, instead of just going yeah. with your gut and like feeling it and like, you know what, this is what we're feeling. Like, yeah, there's a feeling of um, when when you were doing what we were doing. So we were reaching for the stars. We were talking to all the top players in the metal industry. And, and then when we got offered a deal from Roadrunner, you ha- when you don't have that following and maybe, you know, you don't have a leg to stand on necessarily. Like I, I didn't have... I didn't have success to bring to them. I didn't say, hey, we've done this already. We have this many sales and this many fans. I didn't have anything. We well, just they, had, were, they were breaking you guys. Yeah, we, we, exactly. So we didn't have that many good songs. So to, you know, we had to kind of defer to these experts and that people yeah. have that have done it before. Yeah, it's like so, so you decision don't, making by committee. Yeah, so, uh, you know, had... I had a hundred percent say, or one, you know, my band had a hundred percent say in every song in the album. We probably would have went a little more nuts and done like what we started out doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was all, you know, we're now now we're signed to a major, you know, record label, and we're like, wow, okay, we have one shot here to to put out a great album, and here's what we do. But hey, what do you guys think? How do we? make sure these songs can get to metal radio how do we make sure so it's too calcula- calculated for sure and what i've learned now is you know what sometimes the the biggest bands in the world thought outside the box there's no question about it and they all gave the middle finger to all anyone that was trying to advise so them. you you guys felt like you started out inside, outside of the box and then put all this effort to getting in the box yeah i would say that but you know what <laughs> at the end of the day i love that first album because um because it's my it's my perfect album. It's what it's what I did want, and looking back, that's what I wanted. But you know, we did kind of throw some of the other unique things that we did maybe to the wayside to make sure that this album could be shipped to metal radio and yeah. you name it. So yeah. So very, the, all right. So the, so the record sure. is finished. Yeah. It's getting ready to come out. Um, was there were the expectations maybe from you guys and the label was. Were they really, really high? Was there like, all right, this is fine. All these years of getting this all together, we fought, we got on the label we wanted to get on. We, you know, we're happy with this. Was that, was it like, all right, we think X, Y, Z is going to happen on yeah, this cycle? I th- yeah, expectations were high and they had to be, you know, and Gitter really stuck his neck out for us, you know, because he was, when he wanted to sign us, you know, he didn't have too much uh, to stand on with, with what our band was except these really good songs. Yeah. So, yeah, the expectations we had to kill it, and I know we worked our ass off to kill it. Um, so that's actually the, that's something I want to I want to yeah. want to talk about. Yeah, um, so you guys toured a lot. Yeah. How like so a lot there, fast? Yeah, like right at, right out of the gate. That's yeah. one thing I noticed. It seemed like you guys were was John Finberg was booking you yeah, guys. Finberg was our and agent, yeah. if anything knows anything about fin, John Finberg as a as a booking agent, obviously people listening to this who aren't don't know the industry side. Uh, he does a lot of the extreme metal world. He books a lot of European acts. And for the young bands, he gets, uh, especially American bands, they work. Oh, yeah. They are out on the road. So he had you guys busy and you were you were out you toured with a lot of european bands and things like that, right? Yeah, we did we did kind of a who, mix. Who, who did you tour with? We like, toured our first tour was with Soulfly. And 
you know, again, how inexperienced we were that we went right to the, we, yeah, we fr- our first show with Soulfly, it was our first show probably outside New Jersey. Yeah. It was our first show in front of a crowd that size. Um, so we had to learn really fast how this thing you got works. thrown to the wolves. C- completely. And then when were we you played, like ner- was it nerve wracking? Completely. And then the second show was the next night. So the first show I think was, um, the key club and the second show I think in LA, your first yeah, big first show, in show LA. yeah, we drove from New Jersey to LA first, first big show key club second show is probably san diego or something mm. that was probably the first time we ever played two shows in two nights <laughs> and now we have a That's 40 amazing. a 40 day tour coming up so we really uh we really got thrown in we just rehearsed in the basement night after night and we said all right this will be the same thing and it really wasn't that's that's so cr- i wish i could have been there to, i could i, I could have been like see the thing is like i think someone needs to hire me yeah to be like a coach for bands not a manager right not a a booking like a straight up coach like i'll be in there all right guys mm-hmm. we're gonna have a good show i think i could i could get that someone pay me to like tell motherfuckers how their their set is fucking up tell them the mood like dude what are you doing with your foot on there like just little things and bands don't have that and i look at bands <laughs> on stage and they look they look foolish and i wish they had a coach man that's a great idea i'll join Doc you Coyle on that. band coach there you go band actually coach. Uh, I was t- tell my my girlfriend about this because we'll go to the show and I'll just be seeing bands. They'll just be like something's as small as the bass tone is terrible, right? And I just want to go up there and like tweak, yeah. the, tweak the sound <laughs> and do all that shit. And I was like, I need a website right? called Doc Doc Coyle tells niggers how their band is fucking up. <laughs> dot com. It's frustrating, right? Yo, and <laughs> <laughs> no, well, no, it's not frustrating. It's it's me. I'm. Very altruistic, I think. You know, I hope that doesn't sound like a humble brag or anything, but I'm I see young bands, especially bands with potential, and I want them to do well and I wanna get them to avoid mistakes, you know, and say you know, and, and just like so if, like I've been at a show, even and I don't even know anyone, and like someone will knock like the mic over on the so I'll literally get up on stage and re mic that I'll just do, whatever, like Yeah, look at you, man. <laughs> no, You're the, you know, that's, it, what, that's what they need. No, yeah, but it's just about yeah. You want um, it. You know, I've had enough reps. You know, I've had my. Um, yeah. You know, and I've did, done my time where I know it like the back of my hand. Yeah, and, and it you, would be nice for bands upcoming to be to be able to show their songs in the best possible light. So well, you know, t- the best a, sound, the best you know, the best that we can do for them. So, so that's, that's in, a, good in a thing. well, in in a way, our experience wasn't too much different from you guys, even though it was a lot slower. Like yeah, we yeah. did our first tour. In 2000, and we did eight shows with Shadows Fall and All Out War. Okay, and it was like regional, and it, but you know, that I think our biggest show we did a show with Candiria with that and Diecast on that package and played in front of another. Actually, no, I'm getting our I'm getting my tours conf- okay. confused. <laughs> <laughs> actually, the biggest show was the Jersey show, and we you know we played in front of like 400 people or something. Sure. Uh, so we had we had some spe- uh, experience playing a few a handful of big shows. And it was gradual, but our first big tour, I think, was with Nevermore and Opeth. And then, like, big, big was Cradle of Filth. Right. You know, where all of a sudden you're playing in front of thou- a thousand people per night. Yeah. And, and also, you, you, you kind of go into that realm where it's the theatricality of it. It's like, oh, this is a show. Mm-hmm. There's something here beyond just people on stage playing their guitars there's another element of yeah i wish we had more time to learn that you're I mean, entering the world of entertainment yeah you really exactly when you get to that level uh 
you know, us, our first tour was Soulfly, and we had never even spent two consecutive nights together as a band. So, I mean, we're, we really got thrown in and had to learn how to play live, had to learn how to, you know, sustain 40 dates in a row. So what, so what, what was that learning curve like being, like, did you feel almost more like a studio band at that point? Um, we had way more experience in the studio. Yeah. You know, and so the live chops, we just had to figure it out. We had to watch other bands. I mean, we had all been to a million shows, but, yeah. and we have, I'm not, I don't want to shortchange. I mean, we did legwork. We did play a lot of shows, but it's not like touring, n- not like touring. So yeah, it's, it's uh, a different, it's a different, and now we're on the West coast and that's a different kind of fan base than, you know, a different yeah, areas to, of the country. I, I mean, yeah, you have to learn this stuff. Why, why I say this, there's these, there's this like local band thing where people will be like the kings of their hometown yeah. and then they'll go outside the town like and they and they didn't realize that it was almost like like lifting weights but you have two two people on each side helping you lift and you think you're strong as right. shit <laughs> and that's that's almost what a, a a a um a pleasing crowd is like like you don't have to work as hard to get the same reaction whereas you go on tour and you're opening up for some band in Ohio where you've never been and people there are like Dude, bring you better bring that shit because they don't care. They don't. They're not your they friends. They ain't they your don't. cousins. And we're opening for Soulfly. Those fans definitely don't care about our music. And you guys, not you know, <laughs> if I don't say so myself, are also stylistically doing something quite a bit different. Oh, completely. Than it was, it was a band a, like like Soulfly. That yeah. So that was just a learning curve tour, and we and cattle decapitation was on that bill. I mean, that was a crazy bill. Heavy bill. Yeah, heavy bill, and so we picked our heaviest songs, and but the thing that again that started happening. So I said to myself, all right, how do we leapfrog? And not have to do this for five years. Not that Soulfly tour is this, yeah. but for our band, this was not the right tour. Yeah, you wanted to be out with the kill switches. Yeah, and I wanted to get. So how do we do that? All right. So the way you do that is after every show, um, we got off stage, basically went up to every person in the crowd and say, "Hey, did you go to our merch stand? Did you go to our CD? You know, hang, handing out coupons and flyers and and all this stuff, just making sure we connected with every person in that venue. So throughout 40 dates, that's a lot of people to connect with on the ground. And then right after that, we toured with Periphery, and then right after that, we toured with Arch Enemy. And Arch Enemy was maybe even still one of the biggest tours. I mean, those those guys at that time, this is 2009 or 2010, they drew a crowd, man. Yeah. So that was. Um, that was my probably still my favorite tour. Well, that, um, and that's more up your alley in terms yeah, of the, perfect. The, the, the it was perfect. And, and using those and, and applying those same techniques, going up to every person in the crowd. Have you heard of? My, you know, did you see our set? Even people that hadn't seen our set, we were so just in their face that you got to check out our band that they would buy the CD. They didn't even see the set. They were just intrigued by how hungry we were. Yeah. So I wanted to really just accelerate this thing and also make Mike Gitter look good, make Roadrunner, you know, make them look like that they made a good investment. Did you see an impact that was the record selling? So this is the saddest story of the band is that this happened right when illegal downloading and pirating were rampant. So by the time it came to do album two with Roadrunner, um, we didn't have much to show. I think we had like 10,000 sales or something, which is like for a baby band is okay. But we had 100,000 downloads of our album on pirating websites. Mm-hmm. So that hurt. Th- this happened all right in the, those couple of years. And so, because we were feeling it. We were feeling fans around the world. 
and this thing really felt like it was blowing up. I mean, we were doing tour after tour and more people, every tour were coming out, they knew the words and all this stuff, but the low numbers didn't make sense to us. At that time, record labels didn't know what to do and, or did they maybe not even realize all the downloading that was going on? This was right then. We released our album at the worst possible time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we had six figures in, in downloads. And so the band was growing. And I think that's still evident today because we just put out a single recently well, even and it, I, it did really I noticed, well. Like, you know, while I was considering this interview, I went, I, was list, I went on Spotify and, you, you know, you have many songs in the hundreds of thousands of, of listens. So there's definitely a fan base there. And especially for, I say, for a band that really since something like Spotify has existed has been more or less dormant or, yeah. or at least not uh, in the, you hasn't been touring, hasn't been involved. And that, that tells you something right, right there. Right, and we reached people and I didn't know how, we, we couldn't justify it uh, to a record label that's trying to look at the numbers. I mean, how much money did they make on us? Well, not much. But I'm like, yeah, but they're, they're out there. So at that time, labels didn't know what to do about the problem. This is before Spotify. Well, you know, they well, didn't know how to monetize this issue well, of uh, well, pirating. But what I'm interested in Go is, ahead. so you do this whole cycle. And you, like I said, I noticed. Well, let me just say, your question was, did it work, what we were doing? Yes. You felt, okay. You it do, worked. You did feel like it, it was working. Yeah. But there was some kind of disconnect between it working and some of the band members feeling like this wasn't working for them right uh, so yeah. so your keyboard what was the keyboard was drew drew so he left first no he was in till almost uh till the end of the touring i think um the band was intact until uh we parted ways with our drummer before the the last tour was this and Bill? then it kind of yeah and then it kind of fell apart after that um for temporarily but it fell apart after that so really the and what, what was bill's reason for wanting to leave um, I think we just weren't communicating well. I mean, we, we didn't know. We didn't know how. And when people got agitated with each other, they would talk behind each other's backs. So it was personal. It wasn't, we're not making enough money on the I, road. No, yeah. I don't know if it was that. It was more just personality clash. And I think um, the, tour, the tour after tour after tour was just get, taking a toll on us. And I think... Um, it just kind of unraveled then. And did you guys but, go to Europe? Uh, Bill's one of, by the way, Bill's one of my best friends today. Yeah. It's not that he was a problem. I think it really, because it unraveled right after that. So it wasn't that one person was a problem. It's just yeah. everyone decided, hey, this is going to solve the problems. No, it's not going to solve the problems. Did you guys go to Europe on no. the first record? See, I feel like that was a big mistake. And I think I was talking to you guys at that time. And I was like, because I remember you had done a few tours where you were playing almost the same kind of market. Every time. Where, where yeah. you were playing the same... Like we had offers. I mean, we had Dream Theater. I'm friends with them. They they asked us to go to South America with them. I mean, but why didn't it you go? Wasn't feasible. You Who make, couldn't afford it? You make it work, man. Yeah, I know, right? You got you got you got to figure that. Couldn't shit afford out. it. We talked about it with our whole team and, and the label. It just it wasn't you know it wasn't the way uh, yeah. at that moment. I mean, that was our that would have been right after Soulfly. We but they couldn't went to even South like America. cover your expenses, so you could even just like break even. They covered a lot of our expenses. Not not going to South America, they wouldn't cover, but. I mean, our album recording was insanely expensive. No, no, I mean the tour. Like, they would offer you the tour, but they're like, pay your own way. They don't flights and none of that. There was none of that involved in uh, Yeah, no, that, I don't think. I think That's it was just weird. like, hey, come open. 
So yeah, we, we had to figure you know, that shit figure. out. I mean, but again, I had I had given off this perception that we were so huge. <laughs> I mean, all hey man, the, we got a gig on the moon. Yeah. It, you got a spaceship, right? <laughs> or you don't got a spaceship? Sorry, you can't do the moon Every, gig. Yeah, I'm talking to all these guys, and, and I'm, you know, I'm just I'm selling everybody. Uh, all the all my favorite bands now knew of me because I sent them our demos, and I had you know found them and became friends with them, and. It just we gave off this vibe that this was working and that we were doing just fine. And I guess we also thought, you know, it was going just fine. But we got, you know, it hit pretty hard when you do tour after tour and you realize what that life is. And maybe it wasn't for everybody in the band, but we didn't know that until, you know, tour eight, nine, whatever. It's like, wow, okay, what? Do do you you think some of that could have been alleviated if the touring wasn't so hard like so instead of eight tours you did four tours maybe maybe uh maybe also just maybe doing more of the stuff you have to do you know the shows uh maybe doing a tri-state area tour you know early on i mean there's we skipped steps if it was more incremental and and a little more like get your feet wet yeah then dip your your ankle in there yeah yeah exactly (laughs) right so i don't think the uh moral of the story is that you want to always leapfrog and and do it uh the way we did it because we lived it was fast man it was fast and then and then you guys were young we were young yeah you know i don't even think i was 20. did um so when the band started falling apart um was the was that around the same time that uh, Chris decided to move back to the UK? Yeah, it was uh, it was a point where we had got we had split ways with Bill, and we tried to get another drummer, a few other drummers, and just man, we realized nobody had what Bill had for these songs. He is a monster behind the kit, and you know, it, it, you just start to realize, wow. We just and and, 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 and he's yeah. just a beautiful looking a, man. <laughs> I mean, you're not. As oh, far he's as, one of a kind. Right? In terms of you know, because people people don't know this. Bill was on the original um, Jersey Shore, yeah. but he got cut. Yeah, they didn't have the they, like the scenes. Yeah, they just cut him out. You know, it's, and um, but I mean, just beautifully sculpted. Yeah, just man. Well, and so just that's a beautiful man. One you know? of the things right there. Props is, to Bill. There you go. Oh, shout out to Bill with his chiseled chin. I mean, this is a guy who was unique. Okay, let's talk about Bill for a second. I mean, this guy pounded the drums so hard. He didn't care if he was triggered or not. I mean, this guy would break stuff. And he played so fast. And, um, and he, he just brought a life to the songs. And we didn't, I guess, realize how much he was connecting with the fans until we said we were parting ways with him and we had a huge backlash. You can't break a core of a band like that. Well, people don't. I think that's a big difference between the... I think it depends on the kind of band, but God forbid it was the same way. We had the same lineup for 12 years. Yeah. And to me, that's still God forbid. And there's something about bands, like unless you have like one guy, like a Dave Mustaine, and it almost doesn't, it does matter, but that one person kind of represents it and there's a revolving door. That happens. But certain bands, you understand that that lineup, that four or five or six people that are in that band, is what kind of makes it what what it is, and 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 it's difficult, I think, too, at a certain level. It's one, you know, if you guys were a super huge band, you probably could have found some random amazing drummer that kind of just just fill in. But you know, so so that that was an issue. What about your your brother? When did when did he leave? Um, no, nah, he stuck through. He stuck through. Yeah, because we had made a second album after we were off Roadrunner, so a lot of the so band the second was still... album didn't the second record come out on Central Media? No, independent. 
Why did I think that? And we album? were talking to them. as supposed to, but it just ended up. And that second album, um, to me, is not really the band. It's really, it was missing so many pieces to me. That's why I'm really excited about this third album because we have so much back together and, and really everything that, the way we built these songs was organic. The way we did the first, I mean, it's well, let's, just, you know, I, I still want to go, I want, listen, I want to know, I want to know how this shit go fell ahead, apart, Howard, man. Go ahead. How did it, I'm, I'm like, so when did this person leave? When did, okay, so, okay. So, let's see. So then we did one more tour with Soil Work. I, let me, I'm trying to think of all the bands that we, they, we had toured with, but there was Dark Tranquility in there, Sonata Arctica, we were main yeah. support for. Um, Soil Work tour was fun. And this is all on the first record. Yeah, we played some co- shows. Um, we did Corn. Uh, we did a f- couple festivals you played with Korn? and stuff. Yeah, dude, we did this uh, New York show with Corn because... I had gotten us a uh, Jägermeister endorsement. Oh, wait a second. I, I went to that show. <laughs> did you? Rose but Lime I didn't Ballroom, see you I guys. Think. Huh. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, We've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Hello out there! Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! We played right before them. No, I, I was I was at that show. I must have I must have missed you guys. I didn't realize. Yeah. So that was that was the biggest crowd. But didn't two cents before. play? Two cents, yeah, yeah. So you oh, played so before we, two cents. We played before two cents. So wow. that's I, I missed you guys. Excuse me. I didn't even realize you guys Excuse were playing. Excuse me. So that night I don't remember so well. That was my birthday, dude. And I had corn. That was the first time I saw corn. Oh really? They were they killed so they killed amazing. It. That drummer out of control. Yeah. Um, that was my twenty. That's a great story. My was my. I think it was. 
I don't know what birthday it was, but Jaeger and Red Bull were both endorsing my band. So they found out it was my birthday. So they decided to cook me up some drinks. And this is a great example of touring life. Uh, I had those drinks right after we played. I don't remember a thing. I, everyone said I was just out. And the next thing is I woke up from New York City. I woke up when we were in like North Carolina for the first show of our next tour. So that's touring life for you. And it's not for everybody. <laughs> but I remember waking up and I was like, what the hell did I get myself into? I mean, these guys, they like drugged me <laughs> and I'm like, out. And then I got to wake up and I got to go play another show for the first show of tour number whatever. So that's amazing. Yeah. So that I think we weren't prepared for <laughs> a lot of that stuff. And um, so you want to know the bones of, of how it fell apart. Um, that Parting Ways with Bill was definitely the first of of the house of cards collapsing yeah that was a bad idea um everybody but, 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 you, but when you say a bad idea that mm. sounds like it wasn't his decision it was your guy's decision yeah it, it was, was oh yeah it was a bad idea okay so it wasn't him quitting it was kind of a, or it was a mutual yeah thing. no he didn't want to go it was okay. uh it was it was not mutual either it was a bad decision it was just uh finding something to blame you guys um, just go baby come back yeah it you was a bad you, idea you didn't have him come back uh, we were about baby, to. Maybe I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's come back. We were about to. I think. I don't, and, but then other things started falling apart. I mean, yeah. this thing just once you break a core like that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So that was uh, that was really difficult. And I think um, the band was pretty much. We did a solo work tour, and then wrote. And then okay, so then we got we got booked for Epica to do a tour with them, and Nevermore. Yeah, I remember the Nevermore tour because I okay. came to that. Yeah, so we were booked to play on both those. And Scar Symmetry would have been on one of those tours, and I love that band. So those were both booked, and we had to pull out because we didn't have a drummer, really. We we tried filling in with this other drummer, and it was a nightmare. You guys didn't play the Nevermore show? No, nope. we, we pulled off that tour. What show did I see you guys at the Gramercy? I saw you at some... I remember... It might have been Soil Work. I don't know. Oh, maybe it was Soil Work. Yeah. Um, because I remember seeing you guys on that tour and is it, it, it after you had done like a bunch of tours and um actually was it so see now i'm getting it all it's all like blending blending you think together. i i have no idea either this is this is <laughs> but <laughs> no but, but the one thing i noticed about that show was like you said i saw kids in the crowd singing along there was it obviously had grown mm -hmm. like you you'd went from an unknown completely unknown entity to something was happening that if you guys perhaps if if things did stay together and if they we kind went of, to Europe and you know just that, well just kind of stuck with it and be like all right we're just gonna grind through this I definitely could have seen that second record taking off and really building yeah. on what the foundation had kind of you know kind of happened so I was I was always really and and my perception of it from the outside looking in was these guys went out and they busted their ass. And it wasn't the the fruits of the labor was right. not as big and as great as they had hoped, and it was like in a way the maybe the um, the their the dream had been dashed a little bit, or oh we did it, but it wasn't like we thought it was gonna be. Is, is there some is there some of that? A little bit of all that, yeah. I mean, I, I think everybody in the band had a different opinion, though. I loved touring. I yeah. it was great for me. Uh, it was hard at times, but it was really great for me. Um, not everyone felt that way, maybe. Um, and, and also Roadrunner not being as excited as we were, we're trying to explain to them, Hey, listen, 
you know, we're global right now. There's people all over the world getting our tattoos on. Like, this is happening, but it wasn't on paper. And this was just a stressful time for the industry because bands couldn't prove their worth because it wasn't in dollars. It was in clicks. Well, but it was also, too, I think, in a way, the timing got screwed for you guys because also before streaming had taken off. There was no solution. Yeah. There was just pirating. Well, yeah, but not only that, what, what I'm saying is because streaming has become so big, pirating actually has become almost a non-factor. Right. Uh, and not only that, even if the sales aren't there, if we can say, let's look at the numbers, say, oh, this many people listen to the record mm-hmm. on Apple Music. This many people listen to the record on Spotify, and they can geo-track it. Right. So they know. Well, that's what I tried to tell the label. This many people listen to our album on Pirate Bay. <laughs> well, but but that's, what, that's what I'm saying. If they don't have their own... Um, analytics yeah exactly able but the thing is and i and i think maybe from your guys perspective how you you could have spun that differently Mm -hmm. and this is probably the detriment to being solely part of the label system is kind of saying well the label didn't do xyz when at the end of the day if you guys wanted ownership over your career you had to be the ones to 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 put it on the line so if you wanted to go to europe you had to say, oh, we're going to Europe, and if you ain't going to give us money, we're going to go anyway. Right. But you guys weren't ready to do that. No, and, 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 I, and even if – and I, I don't even blame – I don't blame the industry. I don't blame pirating. I mean, yeah, it sounds like maybe that I'm blaming those things for the band not working out, but I'm also trying to explain that the band internally, to keep a band together on tour – I think you know is like the hardest thing in the world sometimes. I mean, you have a lot of big personalities in there. We never like we, we pretty much everyone, everyone in our band loved being on tour. Our okay. problems were when we came off tour, yeah, and re, you know we had to go back and work regular jobs, and that part of it was kind of well, deflating. Well, I think what as I as long mean, as we were on tour, we were then you were, we were good. Happy. All right, so close quarters for us, we just hadn't prepared for. Dude, stop touching my elbow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, man, you breathe weird. <laughs> So your forehead stinks. <laughs> I know you, you know, your nose is stuffed. Get the hell out of here. You know, I mean, you just, you can't be around people that much. We were together. Long. We were around each other for like a long time. Yeah. So that stuff. Yeah. Well, so yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if it was in our DNA. I mean, so there was a lot of factors. This was just not going to continue. We tried, but, um, but you know, and then, and then Chris went back to England and, you know, he hit us up and he said, guys, like, you know, we didn't obviously didn't make any money because this is album one. So didn't he write some? I remember seeing a post. Yeah. That that he 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 put out, and I'm gonna be honest. Yeah. It kind of pissed me off. Yeah. Because and listen, I like I like Chris, and I and I hope he doesn't um take this personally. Yeah. Um, but and and the reason why it, it kind of bothered me, um, is that personally I, I don't even know what post you have a good memory. So he put out a post, and I think it got picked up. Like, I think he put it on Facebook, but it was about that basically essentially that he had done touring and done all this for X amount of time and made, he put out some, I made $80 or some, I forget what number he, yeah. he put out. And um, so I can't confirm or, or not confirm the numbers, but what bothered me about it, um, and it's not necessarily just about him, but it's about anyone on the musician side of things that feels entitled mm-hmm. to anything. Mm-hmm. And it's m- my general view that, guess what? None of us are owed anything. No one. I was like, yeah, you went and bust your ass. You make no money. But guess what? You're not supposed to make. How, how many records did you sell? How many tickets did you sell? If you want to make money, you have to figure out a way 
to do it, but no one is owed that. You know, sometimes you go out, you go on tour, and you're like, hey, guys, they didn't make that much money. And then, so then you say, all right, we're not going to do that again. If you do the same thing and it doesn't work, then you refigure the model it, to make it to yeah. make it work for you. But you can't sit there and say, well, I didn't make money. Like, well, you made the choice. No one put a gun in your head and said, go on tour. Don't make money. You made the choice and it didn't work out. And that's okay. You can go back and you can lick your wounds and you figure out if that works for you. Because I think there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, guess what? That doesn't work for me. But no one owes you anything. The industry doesn't owe you anything. The bands that blow up and make good living, they are the lucky ones. And they're also probably great too. That's why it's not just luck. I don't want to insinuate that. But there's definitely a lot of that. You, It just bothers me when people say, I should have had this. I should, no, well, you didn't. What you know? It's like I should have. And it's fair. I think we all probably felt that, uh, a little bit of that because we skipped so many steps. Yeah. We didn't. Grind Did you feel? You think that was an entitlement, or or an, or just the expectations were did not were too not close to reality enough? Maybe that too. I mean, we looked at the other bands on Roadrunner and we're like, why didn't this? Ha- you know, why uh, why are we not hitting that level yet? I mean, I, I don't know. When you skip so many steps, you don't necessarily realize. Now it's hard to say because. We did do the hard work once we were there. I mean, like I said, we were going up to every person in the crowd. It's just, I think that... It wasn't about... I don't think... But the thing is, I I think... And this is the parallel between you guys and God forbid. It's that no one could ever accuse either of our bands of not working hard enough. Okay. It's... But I think the disconnect um, that we have in common is thinking that all I have to do is work hard and then it'll work out. Or that we will... We'll work hard, and they'll ha- we'll have what someone else has. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, t- selling ten thousand records, you actually should be happy about that. You should like. But the thing is, if your expectations are, I should have sold fifty thousand records, yeah. or I should have sold a hundred thousand. Well, when you're compare, and the, and I think um, people should not in their own lives should really try and avoid comparing yourself to the person next to you. I mean, that was a that was something we did all the time. We yeah. were looking at other tours. Same thing. We were looking at other bands. And we're seeing, and we're just looking at numbers, and and how do we get there? And we kept moving the bar away. Now yeah. in my life, I think I'm in a much better spot because I don't keep moving the bar away. I enjoy where I'm at right now. Yeah, I have aspirations, but I have to be happy with what we did. But we were never really happy because we just kept pushing yeah. and pushing and pushing. And that's where a post like that comes from. And I, I think I, I probably said the same thing privately. Yeah. Like, man, we just kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and you know, and. Poor us, and you know. So I mean, maybe that maybe that did happen, and that, and again, we're still young at that point, and yeah. So there was there was just a lot to learn, and uh, I I still don't know how the biggest bands, you know, stay together and tour and make it happen year after year after year because we did it for a short, fast time, and it's hard, man. Props to you. I mean, you've been on millions of tours. I mean, this is some lifestyle that. Almost nobody has access to. Well, and when, before you get to tour, there's no access to. I mean, we could talk to other band members, but there's no way to learn. How do you how do you stay how do you keep it cool on tour? How do you do this night after night without getting emotional and, and all this stuff and, and fighting with you guys and and what? There's no access to that knowledge. There's no classroom that I could sit in and learn. How do you jump into this lifestyle? So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know. there's definitely, you have to be built for it. 
and even like you know we we saw stuff with like john our bass player who's probably out of the band at that time the most kind of traditional kind of guy you know um saw himself having a family saw himself settling down at the time was a homeowner and struggled at times with the lifestyle because it it was so turbulent Mm -hmm. you know it wasn't as secure as 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 one would like me i started touring when i was 19 years old Mm -hmm. And I didn't care about anything else. Mm. That's all I cared about. And I didn't really find myself as a person until I became a touring musician. And in a way, there was was bad parts of that because it was also, it was all all my self-worth came from being a a musician. Mm -hmm. So you remove that. And then also goes okay. my self worth. So there was a lot of issues that well, took so me. That's, and that's different. I think a lot. Some people get into music because of, you know, that there's nowhere else to turn and whatever. I don't know that that was our case necessarily. We all you were guys were more centered and and more kind of. We were I, all our parents were encouraged. Uh, well, they encouraged us to do the music, but I mean, in general, I think we all came from good upbringings where it was like our friends and everything were going to college and like the traditional past or whatever. We we threw that aside and did the band because it was fucking cool. Yeah. And we were like, we want to do this and we want to make this happen. And then we got thrown on tour or whatever. And then you start to realize, wow, this is not just something cool. This is a lifestyle. This is, yeah. com- you know, we're, and <laughs> what did we miss out on? You're now you're not getting paid and you're working hard every night to versus there were other opportunities probably for everyone in the band yeah so it was uh i don't think we were the perfect band to make this happen yeah. if, if that makes sense. you guys had options yeah like you guys yeah. could go to school or you could you could you know have yeah. careers but i love fields. reading my favorite musicians like they they were if they didn't make this happen done you know that's that's a those are great stories yeah, and that it, was not our story but in a way that you know i think a lot of times when you hear those stories it's that's why they made it was because no question, because no question, there was no yeah. safety net yeah um but all right no, so, i think we all had you know we all had other things that we we could have done and maybe that didn't fuel the fire as much as some of the other bands that have you know okay have so so around this time so mutiny was dying down um did the band like ever officially break up it was more no, kind of just no, what, we were vague i mean it, we were just, just like it just kind of stopped being active after yeah the it just second stopped release. being active right and i went back to college so um again one of the other options i had you know my my father works at a college so i i was able to go back to school which was a tough decision smart but, motherfucker with his <laughs> master's degree well you're supposed I, to be my master now masters i don't know about that <laughs> but uh <laughs> But I went back to school all while, all the while though, playing music, and I was I started getting into songwriting. Um, I had played with another couple of bands. So you were play, so this is one thing we almost ended up playing in this in in the same band. Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. so this this podcast almost should start be calling the Six Degrees of Tommy Vex. Yeah, <laughs> because I had Angel yeah. on, and then I had Tommy on, uh, and you were playing in what. You initially, so I was playing this project with Tommy Vex, and I left. And pretty much as I left, you came in. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't there for this. I hear, I hear. You guys about had some cool songs you had done, though. Yeah, but a lot of those songs ended up being the Vegas Nerve stuff. Got it. Um, ultimately, no, there were some other demos that never. But that seen wasn't the light of that day. wasn't my stuff then. Uh, if it, if what you heard, uh, I don't know. I don't know what no, you Tommy heard. had like 25 demos on him. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> but um, a lot of stuff I worked on, I, I don't I don't think ended up in what you guys worked on. So yeah. that so that ended up being the kind of the reformation of the Vexed band. And then and then from what I heard, you just kind of like disappeared or, or you just, you know, were, or like almost 
it sounded like you like quit music or something for for a time after that or something because that band had a lot of steam around it and obviously so many talented people because it was Tommy, Angel Vivaldi, you, and then Bill, and Bill. from yeah. you know Mutiny. So yeah, yeah. it's kind of like all star lineup and I thought there were some really cool songs. Yeah, and um, there was a lot of momentum and so what what happened where you kind so of so that's yeah and that's all personal now now you get into before Vexed there were you know I was going to school and I was going to New York a lot to songwrite. And I've started meeting all these songwriters. So I was working on these like pop songs and trying to just, I had my hand in a million jars as far as music went um, all the while trying to get my education just in case. And, and, you know, whatever Um, met Tommy, we started doing these rock songs together and it was fucking great. I mean, these songs, I had never written stuff like that before. um, And I hope before we're done, we can just talk about songwriting because that's, that's my favorite part of music is the songwriting part. And Tommy really helped me, uh, learn how to do that, how to hone me in, because I, I would be doing these crazy riffs and whatever, and he helped me set, you know, find the best parts of the riff. So him and I had a really strong bond for probably about a year. I mean, we were building these songs, and we put out a four-song EP, which I'm super proud of. I love those songs. And um, we started playing. And yeah, I was still songwriting with a few other people. I was trying to make a million things happen, and I just hit a wall. Um, you know, again, there weren't paychecks. You know, I was trying to find where it's going to come from. And so, but you were looking. See, that I find that so interesting because I've never, I want to say I've never, but my relationship with music in the creative world was I would never sit down and write a song. I'm like, all right, I'm going to make money off this song. Like, I, to <laughs> me, it was always I made music because I wanted to make music. Yeah. So was that well, something? That was, wasn't... was that like your thing was, well, I want to be really successful. And I want music to be my portal to success. Yeah, and I think so. Now I'm at a place in my life where I'm making music because it's fun. Period. What are you talking about now? But but I'm saying that when I say that, I get it now. Okay. I think <laughs> I was still clawing away, yeah. trying to figure out where how I'm going to make this a real career mm-hmm. that was really going to sustain me because all these projects I was working on, I didn't have time to really work a day job and and you know make sure I was so taking care of. So you were just of. going to school. I was and going to school and working. doing this and like I had I was waitering a couple days a week. It wasn't enough. Yeah. So I just hit a, a point where I just told Tommy and the guys like I see the potential in this band. Don't get me wrong. These songs are like some of the best songs I've ever done. And this could be huge. It's just, I just didn't think it, it just wasn't for me. I was, I was burnt out. This was years of just trying to get to that yeah, next you level. You were grinding. I was just, yeah. And when, and if you can tell anything about me from the stories I told you about, seventeen years old, trying to, I mean, now I'm in my mid twenties doing that same drive. It's it like seven, eight years. You can't sustain it. I mean, yeah. I was doing it at such a level where I would be up, you know till two in the morning making sure I finish my emails and then get up at seven to make sure I replied to those emails from 2 a.m. Like these are, I was just hustling. That's what they call burning the candle at both ends. Way, way too hard. So what so, did you do? So, so you, not only did you stop doing Vex, but did you stop doing all the, those other projects? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of. And what um, did you do? I went, I went to my, our old merch guy, Matt Young at Warner Music Group. And I said to him, I want to see if, now that I got my degree, I want to see if I could work on the back end of the industry. And Warner Music Group hired me. And I worked there for about three plus years. What were you doing? I eventually became, I started out, it was the digital team. So digital accounts. So I had it in my hand. I was helping Warner Music Group. And so for people who don't understand it, because it's really confusing, is Warner Music Group is this big umbrella that underneath it is Roadrunner Records, fueled by ramen, 
ADA, which are a bunch of indie labels, Atlantic Records, Warner Brothers Records. So I worked at Warner Music Group. Like I kind of look at it as the air traffic control center. It's called WIA, and they're the best in the business. And so we help all those labels manage their digital accounts, and that's the, that's the department I was in. So now I'm learning YouTube, Spotify, um, our Amazon accounts, and I eventually got promoted to the Spotify team. So mm-hmm. the last couple of years I was doing Spotify exclusively and I became a manager there. So. so given that you've never seemed to lack for confidence, <laughs> which, which, I, which, which, which I, listen, which I think is probably having, fake it till you make listen, it, right? having, <laughs> having confidence and having charisma will open more doors for you than probably having any talent. Um, you know, and, but that comp, what that confidence gives you is the kind of cojones to go to your buddy and say, hey, can I can I get a job at, at Warner? But I think that's incredible because it just shows, A, you can go in without really having much experience in that realm. Is that true or Dude, not? Dude, this is totally different. No, People that are in a band have no idea what goes on behind the scenes there. And when I got there, I was like, holy shit, this is how it works. Did, I mean, this is, a, this is a corporate job. Did you feel like an imposter? Or like, or, or like, like real, like, what the hell am I doing? Well, my pitch was, so I, man, I guess I just had a lot of pitches to get me to the next level. So Matt Young helped me get my foot in the door, but I didn't work in his department because he's merch. I had to meet a whole bunch of new people and try and convince them to promote me, promote me. So my pitch when I first got there was, Hey guys, I just came from the touring life from being out there. I know what musicians really want. I know what's really going on at the shows because these guys, they're not at the shows. So I said, I can bring you that perspective. Let me help you do that. And so then right when I got there, I started helping them with these really cool projects on how we can brand ourselves so that the fans that I knew so intimately would respond to what we were doing. So I tried to bring them that perspective. And uh, and yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's, I, I don't know what drives me necessarily. It's just that I, I didn't like idling. I still don't. I don't like idling. And not working towards something. Yeah. So when Mutiny kind of fell apart, I was pretty quick to probably go back to school. And then when Vex, the second it didn't really feel right because I was just going to hit a wall. Move on to the next one. Yeah, on to the next thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm probably pretty frustrating to be in a band with because I was so quick to change and, and figure out what the next step is. And then with Warner Music Group, I just kept trying to climb that ladder really fast. And that only took me... A few years to realize that wasn't for me either. So. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I I think not for not for nothing. And it, one thing I've noticed, I say is not hey, not for nothing. We're back in Jersey. By the way, we're doing this in Jersey on That's on my Jersey, trip man. back. Jer- Listen, not for nothing. Uh, <laughs> your people that are wired that way, it's almost like I feel like people like you are good. You can't stop people like you from being successful, as far as I'm con- concerned. Unless you like, you know, pick up a heroin habit <laughs> or some shit like that. Thank you, sir. Like you're that type of thing, and that's I think what's really hard about bands is that when you're in a band, you're connected to three or four or five other people, and it's difficult to actually act as an individual. And if you do, you're treated as as if you're a very selfish person, right. um, and I think that can frustrate a lot of people. And even I've been in situations where I felt tied down or or felt 
that I'm not able to express myself or do the things I want to do, which is why I do something like the podcast, which right. is why I do writing because I don't have to ask someone else for permission. And, I can just do I can just do do something. And bands are different. You you have to communicate. You have to make sure. Hey guys, I think we should do this. It's a very collective experience. Yeah, and I I regret some of the ways I acted trying to push whatever bands I was into that limit because I start looking at the other guys in the band saying, Hey, why aren't you 24 hours a day? Let's go. But every, everyone works differently. And you know what? Four guys that may work differently may all get to the same place. So I thought that my way was right. But 24 seven, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I would impose that maybe on other people. And that didn't help the friction in the band either. You know, and I, I look back and I say, well, now I just, I feel so matured now from this whole experience because I, from the from the music, well, uh, how, how from the you know? I'm 29. 29. So I learned. <laughs> boy, he was a baby. I've lived fast, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, I think I'm in a place now where I, I just see it from so many different angles now that everybody can have a totally different style, and that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when I was younger, I thought there was something wrong with that. I said the guys that you know are more chilled out and calculated and whatever, they're they're not gonna hit it. They're not. They're not gonna get to the, those levels like the person that's up twenty four seven making phone calls and emailing and all this stuff. So it's just, um, you know, it, it's it's hard dealing with a guy like that. I bet. Well, it's funny because I think the way you are, Tommy's like that too. I know. Oh, where God, he's put like that together. He just works, it. works, works. And yeah. he's, but he's that thing of I can gr- I can I will will it into existence. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, if, if you said you were, I need a bunch of people like that. Sometimes though, when you have if you have four or five people like that. And they just want to grind, grind, grind. They also have their different ideas about how things should work, and then you get a lot more headbutting mm-hmm. as opposed to having one or two alpha dogs in a band and let them kind of run the show, and everyone else just provides support. You know, they're every band I think can be as egalitarian as you want, but hierarchy does help organize. No question. And 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 you know, and, and delegating and like, deferring, yeah, like 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 absolutely. like I'm in bands where I'm not. You know, it's not my band. I'm just in the band, and I and I have to know. Be in the back. Be you know. Be support. You know, just be a, a role player, and that's right. okay. Right. You know, it's, you know, for to have different roles, right. you know, as long as everyone's okay with their role, I suppose. Yeah, it's a very good point. So I think it's been a it's been a funny funny journey of learning and you know making mistakes, and also at the same time having a product that I ended up reaching a lot of people with. Um, from that hustle. So there's, there's, I mean, that's what this podcast is about is the positives and negatives. I think we, we hit a lot of the, well, it's you know. about, well, it's also about, you know, you giving your, the thing that came so natural to you, yeah. which is the networking right. thing a lot. I can't tell you how many bands that are awesome that I know that have the music and have the whole thing, but they just don't want to talk to anybody they don't want to leave the house they don't want to rub elbows Uh, we could talk listen we could talk about that all day (laughs) just to put a bow on what we were just saying i think it's funny because my whole life i thought hustle 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 and you'll get the reward with money or whatever the case and so and also some decisions that we might have made on how this song should be crafted or whatever is were based on factors like hey it'll do better at radio whatever now i'm at a place where I don't make any decisions in my life based on money alone. Yeah. And I, a lot of my friends still do that. I don't do that. And it has led to such a happier year than I've ever had because I'm finding things that I love 
and all right, how can I make this work? But it's because I love it, not because it's going to make me money. Yeah. That's how everyone, I, ho- I hope everyone gets to a place where they're able to do that because it's just such a better quality of life. Well, it's counterintuitive, I think, for some people. And I was, I know the way I'm wired. And to me, it's, there are certain things you do for money. You know, like if I, you know, I bartend and it's like I'm bartending to make money. And I think that's okay because that's you go, you work your job, and it's great. You you make your money. It is what it is. And there's things in the creative realm. Even though I can be paid for something, like I can say, oh, you know, Doc, do you want to contribute to this album or something? And I'll get publishing. But when I'm actually doing the actual creation, I'm not thinking about that at all. Right. All I want to do is make something great. Right. You know. And if there's feedback, hey, oh, can you? kind of change this or and maybe they're thinking about radio or their thing but me i'm just thinking about oh this is what you want and then it's just a job that's the best and it's just like all right i'm trying to make the people who hired me do something happy that's the best um but i don't think about the money i'm thinking about oh i just love creating and this is what i do and you know what if i could give advice to my you know 20 year old self it would be just that it would be yeah you're getting a lot of uh, you get you're hearing a lot from the labels and the managers and, you know, you're learning about metal radio and, you know, you're hearing a lot of noise. But, man, I knew what I loved in my heart and it was unique and it was different. And we had some riffs and, and songs that were just fucking nuts and that no one was doing. So if I can give myself advice back then, it's finish it out perfectly the way you want it because it's fun and because it's what you want to do. Um, if that, you know, if you pursue it that way, much better chance of having longevity in and building a career. I think, I mean, you look at Shark Tank or any of these like entrepreneurial shows. Um, I mean, these guys, they didn't listen to anybody. They did what they wanted to do. And because they said to themselves, this is what I love and this is right. Well, that's the thing. You have to have some faith that if you really like it, that there's enough people like you mm-hmm. that will also kind of enjoy that that vision because it's not because people listen people can see through bullshit they can see when you've like crowd tested it and it's been it happens in movies all the time where like the vi- the director will have this great vision then the studio comes in and says no you got to change this because we have to appeal to this demographic <laughs> in China right no you can't do this yep. because this you know it's too you know and and when the idea becomes diluted Mm -hmm. and crowd tested and 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 market researched the end product becomes something that people like ah there's just something sterile about it there's something too uniform and the biggest example is probably what we just experienced this year with the presidential race i mean the people that were buttoned up and going by the script that has happened for decades they weren't getting much traction but then you got guys like bernie sanders and donald trump who are talking shit and they got so much traffic I mean, that's a great example. I was watching this unfold and I said, you know what? These guys, they're not listening to their advisors at all. They're just going out there. They have no script and they're just going with it, talking shit on uh, the the entire system. And Bernie says, millionaires and billionaires. Yeah, (laughs) pretty good Bernie. (laughs) So, I mean, this was just, uh, this was proving my, uh, it was helping me learn this whole year. I'm saying, wow, if I just... If I just make decisions based on what I believe and what, you know, what makes sense to me, fuck it. People will find me. People will figure it out. So, yeah. you know, I have a lot of different avenues I want to I go down right now, and I'm basing them all on stuff I like to do. So to kind of wrap everything up, 
you know, and you've, you've alluded to it a little bit talking about the new mutiny record. So how did everything come back together where you guys wanted to do a new record and actually also who is still involved with this version of the band from the from the original version so it's myself dan beige on guitars and keys bill four on drums and chris clancy is singing and he did all the production all the mixing so you did real drums all the mastering we did wow oh in, fuck in this, yeah in and this I, day and age. I don't know how i said to the band how do we post these new songs in every post i want to say these drums are real like they because so many albums don't have real drums anymore it's where did like, you listen, track drums he did them at his house. He has a personal studio now. Oh, snap. So, listen, the drums he did on this album, I can't even handle it. I'm a metal drummer fan. You know <laughs> what I mean? And it's on my own album, which is great. He he went crazy, which makes me uh, just remember what it, it feels like the whole band's playing again. It's the best. Yeah. It's really, really good. So, uh, I mean, this is four years from our last anything we released. And uh, we just, I said to Chris last year i guess a year and plus a year plus ago i said to chris um you know we should try and do something and whatever and he's he was mixing and he's doing his own band wearing scars um he's touring you know so he's doing that thing over in the uk but i said look at they're doing that tour with uh devil you know yeah so i said not i said i think chris and i both said look man there's mutiny fans still out there i mean if you go on our pages and we're getting tweets and messages and stuff i mean people want music so what can we do so uh i always spark the fire as far as the songwriting goes so i just locked myself down here and i did probably more than nine songs i think but the album itself is nine or ten songs and um sent the bones over to chris Mm -hmm. through the interwebs and chris took them and started to put them together and arrange them and it was cool but we really had to we we started to say you know we got to really bring this bring this together if we're going to do this we got to do it right um so bill and dan got involved and man these songs are is dan still in the uk no he's in florida okay yeah he lives in florida you know he's american now (laughs) you're american now (laughs) lost his accent no he still has that thing that posh accent. You can't get laid without that without yeah. that, that British accent. I don't know. He gets he gets <laughs> he gets some good traffic from that accent. Man. <laughs> he always did. So yeah, you know, uh, him coming in and he he's just master on programming and keys and all that stuff. And then he shredded all over this album. And then we have three guest so, guest spots. Uh, we got Andy James doing a guitar solo. Pierre Nielsen from Scar Symmetry does the craziest solo of all time. <laughs> and uh, and then um, not human. Justin Hill from a band called Sixth. Okay. is back to sing uh he sings a part with chris on the album so uh it's the best album we ever did way better than first and second by by far in my opinion uh, and not and i know every band says that because it's new but i have a better reason than that not just because hey it's our new album it's our best album it's because this is the first album where we didn't give a fuck about anything yeah we just did these songs because it's fun and because our fan we did it for our fans not to gain new fans although it, it may do that but we did it for, it, de- it definitely will. yeah well but we did we did it for our fans so we have no one to impress but ourselves and we just we push it to the limit and they're the best song. every song is is just a hundred percent as good as it can be period and is this going to be self-released yeah and are you guys going to do some shows man well let's see what happens you just kind of want to see if there's a reaction let's see how the reaction goes i mean i would love to get chris over here and we'll do some tri-state stuff and or and, even you, know, you guys one of the uk would probably be that do would really be cool well. that might even be more feasible because we've never been over there so i'd love yeah. to play some well, stuff the thing about the thing that's great about touring the uk is it's 
not the biggest country in the world. Yeah. So you could do two weeks yeah. and you're only, it's like drive an hour and a half over here, <laughs> yeah. drive two hours over here. And it's a different little scene. And Chris is from there. Yeah. So I imagine he has some fans. You guys were on Roadrunner, which has a, uh, you know, a big foothold in the UK. Yeah, that's the new dream, man. This These songs are, are meant to be played live. There's no question about it. I mean, they're, uh, they're fast. They're heavy. We don't care. Um, Bill's, you know, playing his ass off and and also there's no filter on anybody like if dan wanted to do this in his solo i mean he did it if bill wanted to throw this crazy fill in there there wasn't a debate about it he just did it so you know you listen to the songs and it feels to me just like the most organic album we did um and so i'm really i'm I'm fucking proud of it we're putting it out ourselves so we're just asking people to go to mutiny-within.com and just and go get it um is it going to be Will people be able to stream it? Will be on like Apple Music It'll be and everywhere. Spotify everywhere. Okay. Yeah, and we also have CDs. We're doing a limited run of actual physical CDs. We didn't do that last time, so people can actually get booklet. Yeah, and all this stuff. So you know, we're doing it for real. Surprised you think you guys probably should have did a crowdfunding. It probably could have did well. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe next time we could do something like that. Yeah. Um, this time, we just wanted to do this for all all the right reasons. The problem is, if we put too much pressure on ourselves because we're yeah. all doing other things and i would hate to do a crowdfunding and not deliver but let me tell you man this album has excited all of us to where we're all like hey what can we make this again so that's what that's actually what i'm, I'm interested in is is this isn't a situation where someone like you or chris you're not like oh we're we're, we're never going to do the band thing Again, you're still you're still open minded to actually doing it, or is it? Have you moved on from that? We're like, no, nah, I'm gonna have a regular kind of life and <laughs> a regular life. No, I you know what I'm saying. I'll <laughs> I just know. have a job, get married, have kids, whatever. I mean, then- yeah, that's that's the most likely thing to happen. But um, you know, the album. I mean, we put out one single, and it's 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 doing well. But I guess I I just think there's different dividing lines. Like yeah. there's some people who are like, you know, they're gonna be getting in the van and going on tour. Yeah. And because that's just what they do in this part of their life. And there are some people who say, well, I used to do that. And now I'm a regular, I'm just doing normal <laughs> shit and I don't get in the van. Yeah. I'll maybe I'll put out a record. I think I've learned, I told you I'm 29 and this, my whole journey has been really fast and I've gone in a million different directions. So I can't say anything like this is how it is now. I don't know. I have yeah. no idea what the future holds. Okay. But, you, but I'm just saying, are you open to it? That's all I want to know. <laughs> Man, I, I mean, to what extent, but... I don't know. You know? Hey, look, if, if fans come knocking down our door and they want to hear these songs live, I don't know. We can figure it out. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I got to leave it at that. We haven't talked about it as a band. We've been focused on this album because the one lesson I learned correctly back when, when I was a teenager, was that the songs matter more than anything. Yeah. So we made sure that these songs are top-notch. So we haven't thought past releasing the album. So right now we know it's coming out February 10th, and... Man, it's going to shred your face off, man. You're going to love it. All right. It's well, fucking heavy. Really appreciate you coming on here, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you thinking of us, and uh, we looked up to you guys, and I wish I could interview you. Well, here's the thing. I'm taller than you, so well, you can't I help but to look, look up, up to me. To you. you can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> So there you have it. That was my talk with Mr. AJ from the band Mutiny Within. I want to thank him so much for his time and just having some really interesting insight on how you make it in this industry and 
you know, I think it's his story and his philosophy on things I think are really going to be helpful for other musicians out there just trying to make it and figure it, figure it out. And hopefully you can learn <laughs> some of uh, how to avoid some of the mistakes guys like me and AJ made. Um, sometimes I worry maybe this, the shows, the interviews get a little long in the tooth, but sometimes you just get on a roll and you have to keep with it. And I think there's really interesting insight throughout our conversation. Anyway, happy new year, everyone. Thanks for listening. This is your X-Man, Doc Coyle. Mamba out. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.